morning. Uh, Romans chapter 5 is the first passage. So if you'd like to turn to page 798, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for, the right, for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through him, to him through, through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And our next reading is on page 878, and that is from Revelations 21, verse 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for this first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated at the thr- on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you once more for the <clears throat> comfort, the hope and the peace that we receive as we are nourished by your word and the hope that it gives us for the future. Father, we pray now that you'd give us a greater understanding of your your word and our world and uh, the future that you've secured for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So, what I have here in my hand is uh, possibly one of the smallest Bibles that, uh, that exists. Uh, can you see how big it is? It includes uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
all 66 books of the, of the Bible. And I guess it's similar in size to a matchbox. Now, if you can't see it up the back, you can see it on the screen. Can everyone see that? It's about uh, four centimetres high. And yes, I guess it would be about the same size as a matchbox. It's also over 100 years old. So Scott, handle with care. And you need a magnifying glass to read it. But read it, you can. You can indeed. In the early years of the uh, 20th century, there were literally uh, hundreds of thousands of these little Bibles that were produced. Now, you'd have to ask the question, well, why would you do that? Why would you produce something so small? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons, actually. And I'm going to put this away very carefully. <clears throat> a couple of reasons why they produce Bibles like this is, first of all, because they could. Uh, because this was new cutting-edge technology which enabled printers to reduce print to such a small-sized font and yet to retain the clarity. Now, the clarity... I can't reproduce for you on the screen the clarity that's actually in the book, but I'll give, you a, give it a go. Uh, there is uh, <clears throat> one of the pages from the book, and that's, in fact, Romans chapter 5. Uh, can you read that? Probably not. Uh, how about we zoom in on it a little bit? And this is where my camera is less clear than the actual uh, print itself. But um, perhaps we could try reading a verse. How about we try reading, say, uh, verse 6. That's, can you see the red light there? That's verse 6. Well, how about we just read verse 6 together after 3. 1, 2, 3. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. How about that? You did well. And that's from that tiny little Bible about the size of a matchbox. So that's one reason that um, they would produce, because the technology was cutting edge. It allowed them to produce it. There is a second reason why these books were something which you would bother producing, and that is because they took up such little space in your pocket and therefore, complete with their little magnifying glass tucked into the back jacket of it, uh, they could be taken onto the battlefield in World War II. It meant that uh, with the small magnifying glass, uh, soldiers on the front line, soldiers in the trenches, uh, with all of the conflict, all of the turmoil, all of the strife, all of the confusion, all of the anxiety, could be comforted, uh, could read God's word and receive comfort, peace and indeed hope. And many did. Many, many did. Now this year our world remembers the 100th anniversary of the, so, the beginning of the so-called Great War. And this week especially we pause in order to remember the landing of our soldiers along with those of other nations on the shores of Gallipoli in Turkey, a nation which we are, an area which we often talk about in church because it's Asia Minor, it's where Paul did his missionary 
journeys to and established churches in, in Colossae and Laodicea and, and so on. But in uh, Gallipoli, um, we, we celebrate Gallipoli every year, but this week we do so with greater attention, with, with more importance, more significance, because of the 100th anniversary. And when you think about it, I think it is appropriate that Anzac Day actually is on the day that we landed at Gallipoli, that it commemorates that particular day, because the Gallipoli campaign has symbolism, uh, which is important beyond the beaches of Turkey. For in Gallipoli, we do not celebrate a great military triumph. Uh, in remembering a defeat, we actually focus on the suffering, the courage and the sacrifice of the individuals, even on both sides. Gallipoli represents, in one sense, the sacrifice of all of our servicemen and women in every battlefield, from uh, the World War I quagmires of the Somme in France and uh, the deserts of uh, the Middle East and North Africa, uh, to the Second World War, to the war in Korea, the war in Vietnam, to the wars of our own time in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the, the many smaller conflicts that our servicemen and women have served in, in places such as Malaya, and the uh, myriad of peacekeeping missions where Australians have served and continue to do so. Gallipoli speaks for them all. But especially Gallipoli is a reminder that sometimes war is futile. Uh, we Aussies had no real quarrel with the Turks, did we? Uh, but, uh, a <clears throat> but local grievances, uh, historical grievances and a, a complex uh, structure and system of European political alliances meant that the the firing of bullet, the assassination of an Austrian duke, uh, triggered a domino effect on all of those alliances that then came into play and it was like lighting a fuse which uh, lit a fire throughout Europe. And then after four years, more, more than four years of war and uh, nine million soldiers killed, 21 million soldiers injured and an incalculable degree of suffering and destruction, what was the legacy? The main legacy was that it create, created the political, the uh, economic and the social context which was the breeding ground for an even more devastating war that took place 20 years after. And so, as we think about these issues, what comfort, what peace and what hope does the Bible offer in the context of suffering and the complexity of war? Now, as I said, last Sunday we concluded our series on Philippians, but uh, I thought before we launch into a new sermon series that it would be timely for us to do something just a bit different today and uh, to, to instead of being working as, as thoroughly through a Bible passage as we would normally do so, for us to consider these issues and to think about how we can 
uh, have a, a biblical framework, a biblical way of thinking, uh, which helps us in respect to the issues that are thrown up uh, by war. And in, in so doing, I am very mindful that in 20, 30, 40 minutes or whatever, we can only just scratch the surface of these huge uh, issues and I'm also mindful that there are those of us in our congregation who know war far better than I do, uh, who have uh, served in, in war, have lived through war, and uh, even suffer the ongoing effects of war. But as our community is reflecting on these uh, big issues of, of war, of sacrifice, of, of courage, uh, and the state of our world today, I think it's helpful for us Christians to allow the gospel to shape our thinking on these particular issues. Now, Romans chapter 5, if you'd care to have that open in front of you, verses 1 to 11, it's really not the most obvious passage to pick when talking about war, and there's a lot of passages that we could look at uh, in respect to war. But I've chosen Romans 5 because I think ultimately what we need to do is we need to hone in on what the ultimate issue is in respect to uh, God's analysis of our world and what peace in God's, uh, in, in God's plan will look like. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 1, well, it does speak about a peace, a certain type of peace. And uh, there in verse 5... The Apostle Paul talks about the possibility of enjoying, and I quote, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that peace with God which uh, many of the soldiers on the battlefield uh, knew and had found and were looking for. At times such as this, we hear the longing that people in our society have for peace. But the, Bib the Bible actually shines a light into the heart of the human problem. Uh, because the issue is, what is it that causes conflicts and wars? Well, I know that you could do a degree at university on that subject. And I think you could also do a degree on peace studies as well. But, you know, uh, when you, you think about, how about ambition? How about pride? How about greed and hatred and retaliation and opposing oppression? And how about imposing political systems and ideologies on people who don't want those political systems and, ideology, and, and uh, ideologies. And I'm sure that you can think of many other reasons, issues which cause uh, wars to happen. But when it all boils down, it's these kind of things which create wars and which cause the deaths of thousands and sometimes millions of people. But it's not just nations, is it? Ambition, Greed, hatred, strife, retaliation. These are, these are the ingredients for conflicts, not just between uh, races of people and countries, but uh, these are the ingredients for conflict between individuals and within families and within communities and throughout society, at all levels of society. These are the things which cause conflict. And the problem is our relationship with God. Um, let's strip it all away and that's what it boils down to. In verse 7, Paul, uh, describing the human condition, describes people as being ungodly and still sinners. 
Because in our hearts, none of us loves God the way that we ought. We don't honour and obey him in the way that is due to him. And in varying degrees, we prefer to live our lives with ourselves at the centre and with God just a bit off to the side uh, or even not in our lives at all. And it's an attitude towards God, an attitude which the Bible uh, calls sin. We live for ourselves. We may even live for other people, but God is not central to who we are, which means that we do not live in the way that God has created us. And so as people, we struggle in our relationships um, with other people. Uh, as nations, we struggle in our relationships with other nations, and it can lead to war. Now, one of the issues which relates to war is the issue of justice. I was having a conversation with one of, um, <clears throat> one of our elders during the week, Ray, Ray Dunlop. And uh, Ray, uh, Ray, I think, was just a little bit too young to go off to World War II, and his father was just a little bit too old to go off to... He was in that middle generation. But uh, in a Christian family, he told me that... Uh, young Christian men in his church would go to his father and they would, they would seek his advice on ethical issues pertaining to the possibility that they would be sent off to, the, off to the battlefield and that they would have to be pulling the trigger which would kill another human being. And as Christians, how could they deal with that? Particularly knowing that the other person was probably just caught up in what their government was uh, was pushing them to do and uh, you know, may have had a, a girlfriend or a wife or children would have had mum, uh, you know, parents, someone's son, someone's husband, someone's father. And uh, so they're having to work through those, you know, is, is this the right thing to do? At other times, uh, Christians have had to question whether a particular war is a just war, whether it's actually right to... Be, you know, indeed, there are times, there are obviously times, there's almost always times when there are Christians who are caught up in a war where they're actually fighting on the wrong side. And how do you deal with that? Uh, that was the case in Germany um, in the Second World War where there were uh, very high-ranking uh, German uh, military officers who come from, come from no, nobility kind of families who trusted Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour in the same way that we do. And yet they found themselves that they were fighting on the wrong side. And how did they deal with that? Well, for some of them, they lost their lives as they attempted to, to end the war more quickly by attempting to assassinate their leader. And we can read of their stories. Now, that would have been a just and a right thing to do. Uh, this issue of justice plays out in war. This issue of justice also plays out in our, in our relationship with God every day. Uh, because the, the Bible reveals to us that because of our sinful attitude towards God, that we're actually all deserving of his judgment. Indeed, in the Old Testament, and this is an issue that comes up for a lot of people, in the Old Testament, that uh, God uh, sanctions warfare. And some people grapple 
struggle, struggle with that issue. Why is it that God would actually sanction warfare? And what we see when we uh, look at that in the Old Testament is that when God sanctions warfare, it is actually revealing that God is a God who judges sin, that the warfare is God's judgment upon the nations for their sin, and sometimes that's God's judgment on Israel for her sin. But for us, that points us to the reality of, of an eternal judgment. It tells us that God, is a, that God does judge sin and that there will be, it points to the reality that there will be an eternal judgment. And the punishment always fits the crime because you know, when we live our lives with God uh, uh, not at the centre of our lives, when we say to God that we don't want God to be, uh, to be uh, central in our lives, on the day of judgment, God says, fine, I'll back off. I'll back out of your life forever. And that's hell. Hell is where God is not. God and all of his goodness is not in hell. And that's not a future that anyone should want. So it's articulating the, the Bible's view of, uh, of humanity and the Bible's view of judgment. And the issue, of course, is therefore what can be done about that. Now, one World War II story about sacrifice, I think, is quite helpful here. And it comes from the Burma Railway. The Allied prisoners of war who were building the bridge on the River Kwai. You remember, you remember the movie, The Bridge Over the River Kwai? What's, that's a real place and there's a real POW camp there and uh, real men who lived and worked and died there. Uh, they were so starved by their captors that they would, they would barter some of the, the tools that they had with the, with the locals in order to get some things that they could eat, things like eggs or chickens or even rats, uh, field rats that they could eat. Uh, the Japanese knew that this was happening and they made it a capital offence. One day after a work party had finished, uh, all the PRWs lined up with their tools so that their tools could be counted and there was one shovel missing. Uh, the Japanese commander demanded that unless the culprit stu stood forward and confessed, that he would order his men to open fire on the whole group. After some tense period of time, nobody had, stood, uh, had stepped forward. And so a young Scottish soldier stepped forward And after he was beaten to death, and the other soldiers marched back to the barracks or to the, to the campsite, there it was. The shovel was lying on the ground. Uh, it had simply been misplaced. But you can see what had happened there, can't you? That the young soldier had intentionally forfeited his life for the sake of saving his mates. And in a sense, this is a picture for us of the gospel. But there is a difference. Because who is it that Jesus gave up his life for? Let's have a look at the passage in verses 6 and 7, where we're told, you see, at just the right time, 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. So here's a question. Who would you dare to sacrifice your life for? It probably wouldn't just be anyone, would it? You, you may not just decide to sacrifice your life for someone who's a complete stranger. You may not even sacrifice your life for someone, even though they might be an upright person, if they're a stranger to you. But you might possibly give up your life for someone who has been good towards you, or to a mate, or someone who you love. But Paul continues in verse 8, where he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We would give up our lives for those we love most. But look at who Christ died for. In verse 6, he died for the ungodly. In verse 8, he died for those who were sinners. He died for people who had turned their backs on God, which means that he died for you and he died for me. And by his death, he took the judgment which we deserved which means that we can now be forgiven, we can now be made right with God forever. So in verse 9, Paul says that we can now be confident. He says there, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Now here's the issue. When we were offside with God, God so loved us that he sent his own son Jesus to die for us. And so if God has done that for us when we were offside with him, then imagine how good he'll be towards us now that we are on side, now that we are reconciled, now that we are not his enemies but his friends. And so Paul is saying that we can therefore be confident that no matter what happens to us in life, that we can be confident if we're trusting in Jesus that we are God's friends now and that therefore on the day of judgment we will be saved. Now, uh, Lieutenant Elvis Jenkins was one of the uh, very first diggers to go ashore at Gallipoli and he was one of the very last to be evacuated. So he saw through most of the whole campaign. And in his uh, shirt pocket, uh, just over his heart, uh, he kept a, a, a tiny Bible. Uh, not as tiny as the one I've shown you earlier on, but a tiny Bible. It was a French Bible. He obviously could read and understand French. And in the heat of, heat of the battle, there was a, a lead uh, shrapnel bullet which uh, would have pierced his heart except that it was stopped. And it was stopped by, by the Bible. 
just over his heart. Uh, penetrating through the back of the Bible, starting at Revelation, it got as, through as far through as the, as the Gospels, and that's when the bullet stopped. It's kind of a fitting picture, don't you think, in some ways? It's a fitting picture of what Jesus has done for us when he died on the cross, when he took the bullet uh, in our place. It's a fitting picture too of the world in which we live. For in the word of God there we, uh, we, we learn that, we've, that our world has been created by a good and wise and holy uh, and wonderful God. And yet in the scriptures we read that this is now a world which is marred by conflict. A world uh, where there is conflict in the home conflict in society, conflict between nations, that we now live in a world where bullets get fired and where bullets kill people. But it's also a world where there is a solution to sin and where there is a sure hope that this is not the way it will be forever. Uh, for as we read from Revelation chapter 21 earlier on, there will be a day, there will be a day, friends, when God will put an end to sin and suffering. There will be a day when Jesus comes in judgment. There will be a day when the eyes of all people who have trusted in Jesus will be wiped dry. There will be a day where in the imagery of the Old Testament battle swords will be beaten into plowshares. And that's the day that we look forward to. Um, some of us here have been through some of the battlefields around the world. Uh, I've only ever been to one place where there was a World War II uh, war cemetery and uh, have known what it, what it feels like to be moved by the sight of row after row after row after row after row of headstones of young men, uh, many of whom were Australians and far too far away from home from where they should have been. And we can only imagine as the, the emotions that were felt uh, yesterday as uh, by those who were at, the, at Gallipoli for the dawn service, as they reflected on the events that had happened there 100 years ago to the day. But as we reflect as Christians, like soldiers in the trenches, like Christians throughout the ages in all conflicts, in all times of suffering, our one sure hope our one sure rock is the word of God. The word of God which speaks to us volubly of God's love for us, especially in Jesus, of the hope that he has assured for us in the heavenly reality, of the comfort and peace that he gives us now as we walk through each day and what we encounter day by day, 
as we walk with God by our side, as we reflect as Christians, the word of God is our source of comfort, peace and hope. We acknowledge the, the, the Bible's diagnosis of humanity and of the world in which we live. We acknowledge the effect of sin uh, in our own lives and on our world. And we as Christians ought to be those who, uh, uh, who, who serve as peacemakers, who take whatever opportunities the Lord gives us to do good in our world and to strive for peace. But as we do so, we are mindful that the human condition means that conflicts will still continue to emerge until the day that the Lord Jesus comes again. And so in this life, we tell others, don't we? We tell others of the love of God that is found in the gospel and we are people who pray as we look forward to the fulfilment of God's promises in heaven we are people who pray we pray come come Lord Jesus come and so let us pray now Father we thank you that in the midst of conflict and turmoil and distress in this world that uh, you are our sure foundation you are the rock in our lives the anchor Father we thank you that you have given us your word which speaks to us so clearly of the human condition the state of our world and what you have done for the future we pray for ourselves that we would be people who seek to, to be peacemakers, uh, to help resolve conflicts where conflicts emerge, but knowing that the ultimate difference is made by the gospel of peace. And Father, we pray that you would help us to continue to live godly and upright lives in the midst of whatever the world throws at us, as we wait for the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ and we look forward to that peace uh, which is described in Revelation where there is no more sin, no more suffering, no more crying, no more tears because the old order of things has passed away. Come Lord Jesus we pray, come. Amen.